Hi, and welcome to the Frank and Fearless Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Harris. This podcast is all about helping leaders understand how do they get focus, flow, and fun. Over the course of this podcast, I'll be working with and interviewing senior people, leaders, and authors from around the world who will be giving their insights, their questions, their challenges around how they and the people that they work with become frank and fearless. Hello and welcome to the Frank and Fearless Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Harris, and today I am joined by Greg Neville. And as we unravel and we go through this interview, it's going to be very interesting because Greg has got a few little things that are quite different. But we'll come to that shortly. Greg, just tell us where in the world are you and what do you do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so good to see you, Adam. Thanks for having me along to the show. So I'm based in a town um, not too far from Belfast in Northern Ireland, which you might be able to tell from my my accent. <laughs> so, um, yep, I'm here with my wife and kids. We have three kids. And I do a whole ream of stuff. So what would you like to hear about first? So tell us about your coaching. Brilliant. Good place to start. So yeah, I, I coach um, I coach people all over the world, which is great with the Zoom stuff we're doing, isn't it? So um, I actually do quite a lot of coaching over in Canada, where I spend some time out there. I've got people I coach over here in Northern Ireland. And um, yeah, so to do a lot of that, do a lot of one-to-one executive coaching. And I'm also quite passionate about coaching skills in organisations. So I get asked to come in to organisations and help them think about coaching individually and systemically throughout the organisation too. So love a bit of coaching. So how would you describe yourself as a coach? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think... think First of all, I'd say I'm, I'm very committed. I mean, as a coach, I'm committed to seeing people really grow and develop. It's the first mm-hmm. word coming to mind. I, I really care about people. So um, I'm quite compassionate. So what I've been told from clients is that I'm warm and gentle but bold. So there's a combination for you. <laughs> so I think for me, um, I want to create a space where people can be themselves and people can learn. But I also don't want to waste people's time. I want mm. people to be challenged. I want people to grow. I want to make a difference. Um, if they're giving me time that they're not going to give to their family or to some other part of their their life, it's got to have value to them. So as a coach, I try to create a space where it's safe. So I have a lot of my background in sales and developing business relationships and, and other work relationally, so I can do that quite well. Um, so I try to create quite a safe space um, but then it's really about being either their greatest cheerleader at times in their mm-hmm. life, but also at times being their greatest challenger, when you can kind of come alongside and begin to ask those more uh, frank and fearless questions, as we're going to talk about today. Absolutely. So, great point around this aspect of the balance between being a cheerleader yeah. and also being the challenger. How do you know when is appropriate to do either or? Well, I think I think at the start, I mean, when I look back in my life as a human, I think about the people in my life who I give permission to come into that challenging space. 
Mm-hmm. And they are the people that I believe truly have my back. You know, they're the, they're the people I believe are truly invested in me. If, if someone comes into that space and speaks in with that voice into my life and they haven't got that role, all right, I think the opposite, that they perhaps don't have my back, that's not going to be as received as well or understood, depending on my own uh, mm. process and that. So I think at the start, it's about naturally building rapport. And for me, I don't, I don't think I'm very fake. <laughs> I think I'm pretty genuine. So I care about people. So I, I mm-hmm. want a relationship with people to start. I want to be someone in their corner. I want to be someone who is for you. That's what I want. And that's a lot of the, the building rapport and, I guess, cheerleading initially too. Just cheerleading is a very corny way to put it, I guess. But I think even just being in your, being for someone, you know, mm-hmm. the, the idea of being for someone, a lot of that's not the start. I, I was just going to say, because I think this is a really, really valid point. And as I reflect on a lot of the people that I've coached over the years, often a lot of people don't actually have anybody within their life who inadvertently could put that kind of uh, that virtual or that hand on the shoulder and go, hey, Greg, just want to give you a heads up and just go well done on what you've just done. We don't a lot of people don't seem to have those people in their in their lives. Would you would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it's probably the two. A lot of people. Yeah, I love that. I mean, a lot of people don't have someone that can speak in their life with that also detached view because the other swing of the pendulum is also the challenge, isn't it? So also mm. in our life don't have someone that can challenge them. I mean, for me, there are people who are very close to me and they are those people, but a coach provides a detached party, someone who can speak into your life. Whenever I get it, whenever I confide with people at home, people will always have an agenda as such because mm. they're for me no matter what. Um, but a coach, yes, he's for you, but he's also got a different agenda where he can be detached and step back. So you're right. People don't always have a hand on the shoulder. And I've spent my life walking through senior leaders providing that. Mm. But I also think, too, sometimes the higher you go in organizations, people become more afraid to tell you the truth. And if you tell someone the truth in with that heart, I mean, I would dare to even use a word which is a bit controversial, in love. You know, to tell someone the truth in love, to tell someone the truth in the right way is actually the kinder thing to do. So it's a difference between being kind and being nice. So have you found yourself in situations where you've wanted to be, uh, basically be given the permission? You spoke about before about having that permission to take that role on as a, as a coach. Have you found yourself in a situation where you wanted to do it, but the permission wasn't given by the other side? Yes. Yes. Yes, I have. Um, and I think this, this might make you laugh. Um, it comes out a lot at home. Because people at home know I'm a coach. So I get a lot of really good <laughs> feedback at home. I don't know if you get your laughing at them. Somebody get this too. But sometimes <laughs> I get people saying, will you stop coaching me? Um, my, my wife said exactly the same, but she used a couple of expletives. <laughs> and I think that's a great question, by the way. But that just draws out the value of a coach as well. But in, in, a, in a close relationship, I mean, I guess in our lives... Coaching for me is the fastest way to develop people. Mm-hmm. That's what I care about. I want people to have um, their potential unleashed. That's what I really, really want. Sometimes whenever you're in a different mode of relationship, 
where you are the friend or you are the father or the husband or whatever that is. Um, the instinct of you knows the best thing to do here is to coach, but the relationship's different. And so that's the whole purpose of the detached part, which is so valuable. So I can coach mm-hmm. someone, you know, they're paying me for the time or I'm doing that because that's my mode. In those intimate relationships, sometimes people actually don't need coached. There are lots of reasons where people don't need coached, even in the working environment. Mm-hmm. But in the family environment or the friendship environment, I think we're always using coaching skills. I think we're always listening. I think we're always using some of the tools that are more life skills rather than technical skills. But when we begin to put the the coach hat on too heavily at times, I've definitely had a bit of pushback. <laughs> and that's good. That shows that the relationships are different too. So let's talk about the stigmatism then that sits behind coaching or, or challenge. Because I, I agree with you. If I look and I observe within organisations, within the family dynamics, everywhere you go, people are inadvertently, consciously or subconsciously using coaching aspects. Why is it when we know that challenge and cheerleading, coaching is so important, why are so many companies not engaging the way that they should be consciously? Yeah, so there's lots of stuff behind that. That's why I'd ask because it's a really great question. So I guess there's the whole question of why companies don't engage in coaching at all, which may be a separate thing. When it comes to the tact of being frank and fearless, there's different reasons depending on what side you go to. I think some of it's our style of leadership. Some of it, some of it is that, that we have never had someone cheerlead for us and therefore we don't know how to do it for somebody else. Um, we also have a misguided, I think, idea around business, which is about efficiency. So we don't have time to cheerlead someone because it's mm-hmm. not efficient. But I think it's Lenz when he talks about the difference between Lenz or between effectiveness and efficiency. We can try to be efficient, but do it at the detriment of being effective. And particularly in a virtual environment where people need to know they're for them. People need to get that kind of information. You know, as human beings, we're made for community or relationship. And I know that happens in different levels in different ways. Not everybody would call themselves a people person, but we're made for connection. And I think sometimes in era, I mean, I do some programs with um, some of the biggest companies in the world. And one of the exercises we do is just about helping people to see that you can engage with people in three minutes in your organization. Now, three minutes is a tiny amount of time. The impact of that on how your teams work, the impact of that on the equipment they bring, the impact of that on your company is exponential. But it's three minutes. But we tell ourselves we don't want to do that because we mistakenly don't see the payoff. Or mm. we're dealing with our own stuff. And sometimes, you know, we, we operate from what we know. So we operate from the managers that we look up to who are seen as hard and fast and and I love working with managers like that, but we sometimes don't understand the benefits we slip into that. And I guess what I would say is if you look at some of those hard and fast managers, of course they want to invest in their teams. Of course they want to invest in their teams, but think about in their life who they really want to invest with. And it's probably actually their family, mm-hmm. their lives, their friends. That's who they want to invest in too. These people aren't monsters. They're great people. So in those relationships that matter most, do they invest in a cheerleading capacity then? Absolutely. 
That's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Absolutely. So you mentioned there this aspect of touching base with people for three minutes per day. Yep. What What are some of the things that you would be recommending, the questions, the cheerleading, the challenge that you would be suggesting that leaders should be engaging with within those three minutes? Well, I think even to go... Hmm, it's interesting because if it's in a coaching environment or a leadership environment, what's the do you mean just in general leadership? For, just in general from a leadership perspective, you know, I, I agree with you. I think that aspect... Yeah. And I think that I think that, well, I don't think I know there becomes a point within an organisation where you have to have layers. If you get if you've got more than probably forty people, you can't touch, you can't spend three minutes with every single person, and that's actually where the different levels. But what are some of the things, whether you be the owner or the leader or the team leader, what are some of the things that people should be doing on yeah. a day to day, week by week basis? To be to be acting in that role, so I think I think the first thing, um, moving slightly away from the cheerleading piece, if it's looking at the more general leadership piece, is acknowledgement, acknowledgement of people as people, and that does that even doesn't even have to take three months. So if you think of us as human beings, so I'm a coach, so I'm coaching a human. <laughs> so if his life is falling down around his ears outside of the work, that will show up in his mm-hmm. life. It just will. So I'm not a life coach, I'm an executive coach, but I coach someone holistically. So I'm, I'm, I'm frequently, and I deal with some of the senior leaders here, you know, the people who don't have time. I, I deal with that, and I love working with those sorts of people. But even in those times, it's about acknowledging people, acknowledging the people in your team, someone coming in, even the way you communicate, the way that you communicate greeting them in the morning time, the way you begin to ask them a question about their lives beyond work, the way you express an interest about those parts of their life, even by asking those sorts of questions, getting to know an aspect of their life, getting to know something, not getting inappropriately personal, nobody wants to get there, but even just recognising where they're from. So this morning, Adam, when we come on, we, we talked for a while a little bit about how, how's, your, how's, how's life with you? Mm-hmm. Now, we had a purpose today, we wanted to get to that, but even just acknowledging each other is really powerful. Beyond that kind of cheerleading acknowledgement part, there does have to be the challenge part. So if you really care about the leaders you coach or work with in a leadership capacity, there is going to have to be a conversation at times when you do have to challenge. And those times are, are when we are challenging people, I think it's a lot of times around their behaviours as opposed to their metrics because one precedes the other. So mm-hmm. sometimes in organisations, the challenge comes at the one-to-one, the dreaded one-to-one where somebody knows that they're tanking. And the results aren't making it. But actually, the opportunities for change were weeks before that, days before that. In those periods of acknowledgement, in those short conversations that aren't necessarily formal or threatening, but they're supportive but challenging, where people can be engaged upon those behaviours that are ultimately going to yield better results and better metrics and a better quality of life for them and a better quality of life for the company. So we could spend, we could spend the, this whole session just talking about this, but there's a couple of things that uh, come to my mind. I remember hearing the phrase "humanize to professionalize," and what you're talking about there is exactly that: is just building and 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 having authentic relationships with individuals, and just knowing about them uh, as a person. Because when you do, you've actually created more than just a workplace. You've created an environment and a, and a culture 
Um, I think there's an aspect of, you know, as as the leader of an organization, what is the culture? What is the environment? What's the behaviors that you want to have within that? And I, I believe that that then dictates is that how you operate and how you communicate um, with with the people within your organization. And I often wonder, and I'm, I'm not sure if you agree with me on this, is that I don't think a lot of leaders consciously know what it is that they want that culture to look like. Mm-hmm. I think they there's a perception of, I've heard a lot of leadership podcasts like this one or many others, or I've read a lot of books or I've seen a lot of you know TED Talks, and that's the leader that want to be. But really actually deep down in actually working out and go, what's the culture that I want within my organization or my team? Um, would you agree that a lot of people don't spend the time they need to just thinking on that? Absolutely. And I think, too, what we do is we sometimes run to do it aesthetically. We, we take a box. Lives are so busy that we just kind of think, you know, if we allow <laughs> kind of contemporary penny boards in the office and, you know, all this kind of hip cool, that people will somehow feel valued or this will be a safe space. But those companies themselves can be some of the most abusive or difficult places to work. It's about really thinking through, as you've said, you know, what what would I want as a leader to be here? You know, if I was starting again and I and I come into this company, ideally, what would help me flourish? What, what would bring out the good in me? It's about understanding the people around us as well, because we all have different needs mm. and we all have different emotional you know, our little amygdalas have been shaped from our own experiences, haven't they? So we have to understand what are the needs of my team? So some of the areas I work in is around trust as well. And we do so much of this stuff arbitrarily. We just say, oh, we want to improve trust. Or we want to improve culture. But what does that mean in the context of your company? And how frustrating is it to improve something that you don't, you don't understand? So one of my favorite quotes is, I can only improve that of which I'm aware and, and that goes on to that aspect of not only as a leader challenging other people, but actually creating an environment and culture which allows for you as the leader to be challenged. Absolutely. Because you're demonstrating vulnerability. Vulnerability mm-hmm. breeds vulnerability. It's, it's, it's the goal. I can trust someone who is, and it's not selective vulnerability. People mm-hmm. are cleverer than you think. It's vulnerability at the right time in the right way, and it's appropriate. But it's honest and it's truthful. So for me, it's very difficult for you to expect something of your company that you yourself are not willing to do. So as we're talking about uh, culture and leaders, let's use this as an opportunity. When you reflect back on your varied career, and we will touch on that in more detail, is there... Is there a time when you felt that you absolutely fitted like a glove and it felt really right? And then also, was there a time when it just, it, the alignment was just not there? Could you just, just share with the audience a couple of those situations and what was going on for you? I suppose the answer to that is yes, no, and sometimes to them all. To be awkward, I think there are times in my life where, yeah, I worked in a place and I fitted like a glove. And, and for me, those moments is when I'm operating and where I think my gifts are, where I think I'm, why I think I'm called to be there. When I'm accepted and also, I mean, you know, it's not just about having someone in an organization. It's about allowing someone to bring everything to the party that they have. 
it's allowing someone... I mean, I don't think people generally leave to go to the office to feel incompetent or to feel, you know, maligned or not used to their full capacity. It's about allowing someone to feel challenged. And yes, there's an, uh, an idea in my mind. I remember um, running a, a fundraising company and, and feeling like when I come in, this is exactly where I need to be. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't comfortable, but I, I knew it was the right thing. And then, then yes, there, there's definitely been times where I've been in a company when you just, you've just felt like... Um, this is the wrong thing. Uh, this is just not the right fit. Uh, and I've experienced that in, in companies well and in various sales roles. I, I've worked in a lot of sales roles, which I've really enjoyed. And then I've worked in some where I've just realized this is just not congruent with my values or time of mm-hmm. life. And then as well, amongst those things, and I think this is the trick for leaders, is even in both of those contexts, there'll be times when your leaders walk in and they can feel, even if they are in the right place, they can have a day when they don't feel that. Mm. But me as a leader realizing, okay, sometimes people may not feel that way. I don't write them off or I don't also spend time. I don't have cuddling them. I have to figure out how do I get the best of my people? How do I release people? How do I release and equip people that work with me in a way that's going to bring them life or organization life? Because the reality is even when I worked in the world's best place to work, I've had a bad day. I've had something go wrong at home. A project I've been working on, <clears throat> it hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. Or something needs to be fixed. There's a difficult conversation with the member of staff that I must have. So people are fluid. They're people. We've got to be realizing that, I think. So let's talk about your sales background because you've spent many years yep. within, within the sales space. What what were the key things that you learned about yourself, but also about selling and leadership? I mean, there's a lot there, but I'd love to just get some of your, some of your stories and experiences uh, from your sales history. Yeah, so so the great thing around sales is I'm I'm still learning in that regard. So I'm still really learning. I'm still picking lots of it up. I think as I look back, again, it very much relates to what we talk about. And it, it, it makes me think too, as as, cons- as not even as sales, but as consumer. So when I've bought something from someone or invested something significantly, why have I bought it? I've bought it because actually it's about that humanizing element too. So I come from an environment where it's not just about the human bit. There's hard sales targets there you have to hit. At times I have been looking at, and I've done really well, and I'm pleased about that, but there's times when I've had to get figures in. So this isn't... Uh, Disney World, right? <laughs> but the truth is, when I look back on the big sales I've made in my life, it's probably been because of the relationship of the person selling them or of the company. And there's been a relationship there built on trust and built on recognition and meeting needs. So whenever I, inverted commas, still go out to sell, and I still do a bit of that in certain aspects of what I do, it's actually about building that relationship. I mean, you, when you look at how the markets have changed in the last um, 10, 15 years anyway, very rarely good, profitable companies are trying to sell you a product. That's gone now. Mm-hmm. Good, profitable companies are trying to sell you a relationship. So if it's anything from a store card to a loyalty card to some way of trying to bring you back into that store again and again. If you look at services, we used to go to Blockbuster and hire a movie mm-hmm. back and we'd probably have an argument with our spouse what to pick for half an hour. Now we don't have that. 
People don't want you to buy a movie. They want you to buy a streaming service. They want you to pay a subscription. They want a relationship with you. So when I think about selling, it's about treating someone as a human and understanding that I'm trying to build something rather than a smash and grab product sale. So that's about building relationship. And that's not fluffy. That's also, in a sense, highly inverted commas professional. I have to be mm-hmm. careful and appropriate of how I do that. And I have to have a a knowledge of what my needs are in the transaction, but I can't be transactional. Let's just pick up on that aspect of um, relationships. Where where do people get the? Because I think I don't think I know when you're a, when you're a coach when you're in sales. There's a there's an instinctive natural capability capacity empathy for other people. Okay, but for a lot of leaders. There's a, it's unnatural to them. So how do how do leaders build that that empathy and that relationship uh, skills when it doesn't come naturally to them? Well, I think a lot of it's preparation. I think a lot of it's awareness. So as a coach, when you're coaching someone, one of the the best places to start in any area of leadership is yourself. That is the one of the best places to start as a leader. No matter how many people around you are going crazy, there's always something in us that is to do with you know the outcome. Our response is critical in what we do. Um, so one of the ways I would say to people who don't find it naturally is by preparing. Before you go into a meeting, check in with yourself. What are the things that are going on within you? You know, are, are you going to this meeting anxious to make a figure? Are you going to this um, meeting? How are you coming across? What's your tone of voice like? What is your heart in it? So, you know, what, what, what's your heart saying about the motivation for it? How could you see that differently? You know, reflect upon, think about the last time you made an important purchase in your own life and what were the decisions you made to make that purchase? Um, think about the people in your life who you do care about. Um, and begin to think about how you interact with those as opposed to a selling transactional point. What are the behaviours, the ways you're looking at them? How could you look at this client in a different way? How could you think about what matters to this client? And then a lot of it is around, Adam, I think, just social skills, emotional intelligence, being intuitive. Not everybody who I sell to or have sold to wants to be my friend, and that's totally fine. Okay. You know, it's about realizing in the conversation, where's the flow here? Where, where are we going with this? What's the feedback I'm getting? Um, but in my experience, just by starting and asking a few questions to show your interest and your care is really important. So encouraging people even to ask the right questions, but in a way which is as genuine as possible. Mm. So most people can spot a fake. So it's about doing some of the behaviours, I think, that lead to the outcome, even within self, but it's about preparing for self as well. And then I think it's about how do you handle the client? You know, how do you handle the client after that call? Is Are they going to get a sense that as soon as they've handed over the cheque, we don't use cheques anymore, but if they've handed over the cheque or the transfer, is it done? Is it is every time you contact them going to because going to be because you want more money? Or is there a way that you can begin to manage that relationship? So I managed business relationships all across the UK and Ireland. The goal was to take that into a relationship from a transaction to a relationship. So let's let's talk about because you're 
your faith is, has been important to you for a, a number of years. Yeah. And actually, you know, I'd like you to share some of the roles that you've had uh, over the years. And I'm, I'm specifically interested to understand uh, how, how those roles came about. But actually, more importantly, what's the learning that you've taken from doing those roles and, and how you're dealing with leaders uh, now? Because I think that, you know, we've spoken before and there's some fantastic stuff that I know that you've got to share on this. So uh, I guess in my life, so how I got into it was I, I grew up in Ireland and um, had quite a tough growing up. I mean, it wasn't easy, but it wasn't the hardest either. But I guess for me... I went to work in computer science and quite honestly because I wanted to make as much money as fast as possible. So uh, I was actually doing work with uh, one of the world's biggest uh, sports cars companies and I still am doing some work with them. But I was laughing because growing up I wanted uh, five of those cars uh, and I wanted um, you know, two or three other vehicles and I wanted all these houses around the world and that was my life. So at the time... Software seemed the fastest way to make money. And I had a bit of a sales uh, guy in me. I remember being in primary school and teachers laughing because we had this we had this uh, school fair, Adam. It was hilarious. I don't even know how it happened. But for some way, I had a queue of kids. What were you selling? Oh, it was total junk. Like, it was on a desk. It was all the dibs and dabs and junk. But I was putting all these offers in. You know, buy this, get this, get this, come back, do this. <laughs> And teachers were laughing because I had a queue around the assembly hall of people coming to buy my junk. And the teachers just thought this was hilarious. So I've always had this entrepreneurial start things. It's probably mainly been through money driven. And then for me, um, I did computers and it just bored, bored me, to be honest, because it was just the technical aspect of it. So I have a lot of friends who are in the IT industry. I do like some parts of the IT. I, I liked programming. I liked all that. But when I took the people out of it, for me personally in my space, I just found that incredibly boring. And I was much more interested in the systems in front of the systems. I was much more interested in the people in my own class, who were how they were interacting, what their stories were. And that began to speak to me quite a lot about um, things that I really should be doing in my life. And then for me, I, um, in my own particular uh, story, I had a faith encounter. I had a spiritual experience. I went off to uh, a different country and really experienced a, a different way of working and living, um, which which really altered my values. So, um, yeah, I, I became a Christian. I came to faith. And that when I came home, that radically changed my views. So at that point, money wasn't the only thing that was really driving me. Um, now, I think at the time, being honest, I was probably slightly idealistic. <laughs> um, money didn't matter at all. I've since realized money's a really great tool. And it is important, but it's not the only thing. So for me, I began to really want to help people. Um, and I, I ended up working in the charity sector. Uh, and within no time at all, was running a fundraising company in, in Ireland, uh, super fast, running a team of maybe 15 to 20 people in my early 20s. And really been thrown in the deep end of, of how to deal with people and deal with a tremendous diversity of people. And deal with some of the biggest charities in the world who you are helping to, to get fundraising for. And there were lots of buttons there that were pressing my values and I really enjoyed that. It was really good. We actually were able to do a complete culture change in the office. We were able to completely change the output of the office. It was fantastic. And then I began to move from that into sales uh, 
relationships. So I began to manage sales relationships across the UK and Ireland. So for me and all that, I mean, I think for all of us, we've got a driver of some sort or drivers. And part of my driver is 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 the need to want to make the world a better place. As corny as that sounds, it's actually true. It's it's to want to help people in their work and engage, move forward. It's to want to help people buy the right product. It's the right to have integrity as I sell. It's the right to establish good relationships. It's the right for me to make a target. You know, that's that's a good thing for me too. And then I moved into sales, into various <laughs> different fields. I worked in banking for a while. I have an interesting uh, story in sales, how um, where I started selling was pretty funny at one point. Um, I then got to work in the church. So I've worked in the church as a pastor, and I've done that ever since. I still do that part-time to what I do now. Um, well, part of the time, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a full-time role, but it's, it's part of what I do as well too. And that gave me the opportunity to work with senior leaders through some of the most difficult moments of their life because some of the people who came to our church owned some of the biggest businesses around. And so I got to work with them on a pastoral capacity. And then I got introduced into coaching. And uh, this little entrepreneur inside me, this little kid in the assembly hall was still running around in there. And um, I just seen that in itself as a great way to make the world a better place, to, to start businesses which could really help the world and to make business mm-hmm. profitable and good. So I began to coach and get some great opportunities with coaching. And I've, as I've said, I've coached and helped leaders from all around the world, um, which has been great. And I've got to help businesses. And and for me, my faith's not something I throw down someone's throat. So that's why I wanted mm-hmm. to clarify it and ask that. It's not a way of me throwing that at someone. And often with people, it never shows up. Not cognitively, but it's a driver for me. It, it's why... Mm-hmm. And for me, that faith tells me that people are of immense value. People really matter. People have, have, have immense value. And also people have enormous potential. And actually, those things are congruent with the values of coaching itself. That people mm-hmm. have more in there than they realize. And people really matter. And, and people need to be challenged to grow. So for me as a coach, I absolutely challenge. And I, I'm trying to be kind as opposed to nice. So I can be kind, I can be warm mm. and passionate. But, you know, just as we said, frank and fearless, um, you know, it's about sometimes being frank and fearless is about being kind. That's the most kindest thing you can do in a boardroom is to tell the truth. And I think this goes back to the aspect of the cheerleader because there is often people that are not prepared to have that frank and fearless conversation. And that sometimes is the most damaging place to be in the fact if 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 people can't give you the information or the message that you actually need to hear, then it can become quite a dangerous and toxic situation, either for the individual, uh, for the team or for the business. It's completely toxic. I mean, another area I'm really interested in is psychological safety. And psychological safety has been the buzzword. I mean, Google commissioned a study in 2015, Project Aristotle, which shows this stuff works. Basically, psychological safety is, is the opportunity to be frank and fearless. So mm-hmm. it, it, it will not work in your organizations and where it will show up mainly is a toxic environment. So when you, if you look at some of the leaders around the world or companies around the world that has fallen, it's generally been out of ego, lack of accountability, nefarious practices, all because someone couldn't put their hand up and say, what, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Or if you look at some of the companies that have just not reached their potential, 
It's because people in the room hear an idea. Everybody in the room knows it tanks. Nobody can put their hand up because if they do... So the definition for psychological safety is an environment conducive to interpersonal risk-taking. So in a, a boardroom, is it an environment where you're going to get the best out of me? Would you like to have one brain around a table or 12? What would you like? Do you know, so I'm just nodding my head because I've known over the last 12 years for as long as I've been doing all of this work that sometimes I've gone into environments and I've had conversations with people and they don't want to take the engagement any further forward because there's this there's this fear of the challenge. There's a fear of being in an environment where that psychologically psychological safety exists and sometimes I just walk away and go, as much as I can see that the work there needs to be done, actually, I can't add the value because I can't, I'm not being given the permission to create the container and create the space for the, uh, for the individuals. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to slight deviation. Um, doing and understanding your coaching, has that made you a better pastor? Oh, 100%. 100%. And being a pastor, what's the what's the skills that you then brought to being a coach? So, I mean, as a pastor, as a as a pastor, you're called to walk beside people who are having um, good times in their life and and difficult times in their life. So, for example, I, I've married lots of people. That has been brilliant fun. I've really enjoyed walking people through that. But I've conducted a lot of funerals. I've conducted homes of people who have felt really ill. People have been, I've had people come to me because their businesses are failing. So this happened before I became a coach. I had people coming to me telling me about their business. Lots of that came out. So I've spent, I mean, when you are a pastor, you will have a window where people, so, okay, so I'll give an example. I remember when I qualified as a coach, and this is not betraying any confidences, but I remember in one of the coach scenarios, there was someone who was just really struggling. You know, someone who was finding it really difficult that we needed to help. And intuitively in the room, because this person was very emotional and we were coaching each other's peers learning, someone said, Greg, could you pick this up? Because you probably know what mm. you're doing. And I kind of laughed when, when I heard that. Um, but it was true. So I was able then to slip into that mode of walking with that person. Now, not everybody who I coach cries, but people are going through really difficult stuff. I've gone through things with people, which is really, really tough. So that part of me doesn't. And I think part of the skills is mm. being a pastor is create an environment people can trust you. People can tell you what you need, what, 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 they, what they need. And, and they also tell me what I need because I, I need to know how to help them. I need to know how to walk with them. So that's a, I mean, I've spent years walking with people from some, from huge businesses walking in, and also people just in their life. And that's a quite a lot of skills, listening, communication. I mean, I'm communicating to lots of people all the time. You know, you're, you're used to working with people. Um, coaching is a different element, which I think has really helped me as a pastor. And one of the things I do I mean, there also have been faith-based mm-hmm. organisations that have brought me in to introduce po- coaching into that because it's such a sought-after part. And I also think it's rooted in our faith too. Um, it's, it's a different type of of skill that's absolutely needed by pastors all over the world and, and, and it's needed by leaders all over the world because we're all people. 
So um, I can bring elements of both. So another way to look at it, Adam, is I guess I describe mm-hmm. myself as a coach. On one side, I understand people. I've worked with people all my life. I've walked with people in the most difficult times of their life. That doesn't scare me. I, I don't find that intimidating. Mm-hmm. I don't find that difficult. I really care about people pastorally, so I want to be there for them. But I also have this other side, which I've worked in business meeting targets. So I understand that when a company brings me in to coach someone, yes, we need to support someone. We need that kind of, maybe if we move away yeah. from the cheerleading term, but if we, we need that supportive mm-hmm. part, yes. But we, we need to do a job. There's a target that needs to be met. So I, I couldn't have met my sales targets without thinking about the metrics of business, without thinking about how things work. You know, without being faithful in both those things. So that's something I think I bring as a coach, which maybe not everybody's got. If you were to have uh, dinner with any leader, uh, who would it be? Why? And what's the one question you'd ask them? Who would I have to leader? This is completely off the wall. Sidewinder here. But it would be Churchill. Okay. And I'll tell you why. I know Churchill's a controversial character for lots of different reasons. But for me, he had a sense of calling. And what he did, but he also had so many difficulties in his life. So Churchill talked about the black dog, you know, the the um, he talked about the black dog of depression in his life. And I'm a real history buff, so I love history. Mm-hmm. I think there were things about Churchill which weren't great, and things about him which were interesting. And I would just love to sit him down and and ask him what that was like. Um. Beyond just the leadership part, I'd be interested to know what happened afterwards. So for Churchill, Mm. when he finished his role, he really kind of faded into political obscurity. I just would love to hear what that was like, what that was like to have to complete a role, what that meant for him after that. And also, too, he had some very he had some very funny quotes that I, I would quite like to probably hear over dinner, too. It'd be a bit of a laugh. Um, I think he, he would be a funny character. But, yeah, he'd be a very interesting uh, person to sound and have a conversation with, yeah. Last question. What is your one or two go-to killer questions when you're coaching? There are a few key questions for me that are really important. For me, personally, as a coach... The main one looking back is, is helping people maybe who've shared something for the first time with me in a coaching situation to really think about, for many people who are in a coaching relationship, the advantage of working with a coach is you're working with someone who's detached. And you can share something with, with that person that you can't even share with your family, that you can't share with your team. And often when I talk to someone in a coaching capacity, I'm raising their awareness and getting them to think a lot about the things that are internal drivers, the things that are maybe behind some of the behaviours that they're not even aware of. And so one of my favourite questions is is around looking back on all the stuff they share and even just asking the question, what fascinates you about what you just shared with me? So often when I, when I work with teams um, and leaders, one of the things they most appreciate is the space to reflect and move forward. And that's not something that everybody can get. And that's why coaching is so important. So allowing people to make good use of that real estate and look back and say, what what fascinates you most about what you just told me allows people to reflect and allows people to move forward. The real question, I think, beyond that 
once people have done that, is what are you going to do? What are you going to do? So for me, coaching is about moving people forward in their performance. So there is a space for reflection, which is really, really important. But it's also about what are you going to do next? Because unless we take ownership, unless we make decisions, our life won't change. We have so much power, more power than we realize, to make a difference in our lives and moving forward. And so as a coach, I want to help people to be... To raise awareness to the totality of the reality so they can make the best possible choices. But my role is not just to um, help them get there, but help them take the next choices for themselves. They're not cho- my choices as coach. They never are. These are their choices moving forward for them. And so I want to bring them to a place of realization, but I want to move them to a place of action. And when they move forward, they can move forward in their relationships, move forward in their business, and move forward in themselves. Awesome, Greg. Thank you so much. Um, it never ceases to amaze me that when I have these conversations with my friends, colleagues, some of the depth and some of the interesting things that we go into, and today's podcast was no different to any of the others that have been, but also the ones that are going to go forward uh, from here on in. If you have enjoyed the Frank and Fearless Leadership Podcast, please make sure that you subscribe and please make sure that you also let the people know you believe should be listening i'll see you next time on the frank and fearless leadership podcast if you have liked and want to continue listening please click to ensure that you subscribe whichever platform that you're listening on and please join us next time on the frank and fearless leadership podcast where we delve in and find out how people have focus flow and fun thank you